And so if you'll find Acts chapter 5, because like I told you uh, Sunday, when you come when you come next Sunday and we're in chapter 7, you're going to think whiplash has occurred. But uh, actually, uh, chapter 5, I'm finishing up. I'm doing last Sunday night and tonight. So find chapter 5 and let's pick up in verse 17. Christians displaying courage while under fire. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, And drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case I tell you keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Folks, we've got to remember that the Jews were given a free pass by the Romans to practice their faith. The Jews were grandfathered in, you might say. Uh, but then the Jews turned around and they instigated local persecution against the Christians, in, initially just local. Now, in 64 A.D., does anybody remember what happened in 64 A.D.? Specifically to Rome. No? Okay, what about Nero? That's when he brought uh, 10 out of the 14 sections of the city of Rome uh, were burned. Now, rumor had it that Nero was behind it because he wanted to get on with his renovation project of the city of Rome. Uh, when rumor got out that Nero was behind the burning of Rome, he started sending lavish gifts to the citizenry. When that didn't keep the rumors squashed down, the next thing uh, Nero needed to do was find scapegoats to blame. And since the Christians spoke of the end of the world to come by fire, the Christians became kind of an easy scapegoat for Nero. And so he blamed them. And once Nero did that, uh, persecution in various areas broke out against Christians. Uh, some rulers tolerated Christians a little more in their region. Some didn't. It was kind of a mixed bag. Uh, they would burn them. They would uh, uh, feed them to wild animals. Nero himself would would dip them in a tar-like material and put them up on a stake and light them on fire to, to be the torches at night for his beautiful gardens. Just all sorts of things that Christians uh, went through. Now finally, at the Edict of Milan in 312 A.D., Constantine made Christianity legal. He felt Jesus had helped him come to power he felt the Lord had given him that vision that he was to go out conquering under the sign of the cross. And so he took that to be a heavenly sign to him directly. And after that, Christianity at large was at peace. Now, before that time, you and I need to realize how severely Christians suffered. Again, being thrown to wild beasts, uh, burned alive. Uh, they would be put on large pan, iron pans that were heated up. And they would literally be fried to death alive. Uh, tradition has it that all of the apostles, with the exception of John, were martyred. And of course, we know what happened to John. He was exiled 
uh, to the Isle of Patmos to work in the, in the mines uh, there. Now, early Christians, as well as Christians during the period of the Reformation, would, would probably find our obsession with comfort uh, today to, to be pretty offensive and pretty cowardly. Uh, we need to understand that what we're seeing in the world today is probably symbolic of where we're heading in the world. Uh, what are you and I going to do when it comes to our shores? Because I have a feeling the day will come that we'll be test, tested more in this area. But now as we move into verse 17 of chapter 5, I want you to keep chapter 4 in mind. Remember what had happened in chapter 4. Peter and John had been imprisoned after going up to the temple and the guy was healed there. And after they were put in prison, they were brought out the next day. We've covered this past couple of Sundays. And they were charged no more to preach in the name of Christ. And of course they refused to obey that command. They went to the church. They asked the church to pray. The church did. The church recognized the sovereignty of God and how all of this was in God's plan. And after they prayed, the Bible says in chapter 4 verse 31 that the place was shaken where they were assembled together and God gave them even more boldness. Well, as we saw Sunday night, then enters Ananias and Sapphira into the picture. And we saw what they did. They, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They tried to deceive the church. They were pretenders. They were hypocrites. And God dealt with that very seriously. And once God dealt with that, we see here what happened. We're told that great fear came upon the people. God added to His church. And then people continued to be healed. Now, this sets the stage for the apostles' second encounter with the Jewish authorities. And that's what we see beginning in the verses that we look at tonight. First thing I want you to notice with me tonight is the imprisonment. The imprisonment in verses 17 and 18. The imprisonment. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. They put them in public prison. Now, why would the Jewish leaders do something like this? Very simply, we're told, it was a case of jealousy. Now, it's been said before, there is no jealousy like religious jealousy. Now imagine the high priest, supposedly the spiritual leader of Israel, and he's infuriated because people were being healed and Satan's bondage on people was being broken. Imagine somebody being mad about that, but they were. Essentially the Holy Spirit was giving the leaders and the Jewish people the signs that they always craved. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians about the Jews and the Greeks? That the message of the cross was what to the Greeks? It was a stumbling block. And, and what did he say the Jewish people are always looking for? They're always looking for signs. 
We saw in the ministry of Jesus. We saw it there in the gospel of Mark that we just came through. That the people always wanted Jesus to do some other sign to try to prove who he was. And so they were always wanting signs. Well, the Lord was giving them signs. But did it satisfy them? No. No. And so what did they do? They laid hands on the apostles. If you don't like the message, what do you do? Go after the messenger. Now, whereas in chapters 3 and 4, they laid hands on Peter and John. Apparently here, it's all of the apostles. Now, folks, this shows us something. Something I want you and me to understand. Just because you might be walking in the center of God's will does not mean that you are necessarily going to have everything go your way in life. I think of Daniel. Well, let's, let's even go be, before Daniel. Who do you remember in the book of Genesis that, that suffered hardship? Joseph. Joseph put in prison unjustly for years, even decades, because of his brothers. Because of jealousy, exactly. And then Daniel, again, because of jealousy. The, the, the uh, other leaders, the other spiritual le- pagan spiritual leaders said, you know, we don't like this Daniel being put over us. And we're going to need to find something to accuse him by. And they, looked, they said, if we're going to find anything to accuse him by, it's going to have to be in relation to his faith. And so they went before the king. You remember what happened. They had the decree passed that nobody could pray except to the uh, leader uh, of, uh, of Babylon. And Daniel kept right about his business, opened his windows towards Jerusalem and praying. And, and he was dealt with because of that. My, my point being, you read through your Old Testament. You turn to your New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the roll call of faith. And and you look at all the names that are listed there in the book of Hebrews, the saints of old that are examples to us today and just look at the number of them that suffered. It's believed that Isaiah the prophet under King Manasseh was sawn in two. Suffering. This, this element of suffering. And so you and I shouldn't think if I'm being opposed for my faith, if people at work don't like the Bible on my desk or they don't like what I stand for, or people at school or, or my neighbors or family members, if, if they don't like something about me, there must be something wrong with me. No. It's pretty standard fare through the scripture that those who stand for Christ are going to be persecuted. In fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will end up suffering persecution. And so this, this isn't outside the norm here. 
They suffered, they were persecuted, and they ended up being thrown in jail. Now folks, I want you to imagine the scene that's going on here. At night, an angel of the Lord opens the prison door and tells them to go. Now you got to see a little bit of humor in this because the guards don't realize that they are guarding empty cells. Now, the apostles are told to go to the temple. Why the temple? Maybe a couple of reasons. One practical and another spiritual. A practical reason, go to the temple because the temple is the center of religious activity. Remember, even at this point, Christians were continuing to go to the temple at the times of prayer throughout the day. And the Jews were going there. And so they would have simply been going where the people were going when they were going to seek the face of God. So very practical reason. Go to the temple because that's where you're going to find everybody who's looking for God. And then a spiritual reason. A lot of people would go to the temple to do what? To offer some kind of sacrifice. And so the message they preached about Jesus would tie in with that because who's Jesus? He's our Passover lamb. So they could tie in the message of Christ with the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so the the temple was a very natural place to go. Now I want you to notice what their message was about. In verse 20 it says, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What did Jesus say in John 10? I'm come that they might have what? Life and have it more abundantly. Jesus is our life. Now, you might ask, wasn't it risky for the apostles to do this? Was it risky? Well, sure it's risky. But you see, they were under divine commission. And folks, we need to remember we're under divine commission too. What do we love more today? Do we love our comfort and ease more than the great commission? Think about that. Seriously. Do we love our life more than the commission God has given to us. What do we love more? Well, second thing I want you to notice is the discovery that begins there in verse 21. Uh, you, you gotta, again, you got to see the humor in this. All of the religious leaders are being assembled together. And what's being communicated here is that the entire Sanhedrin, 70 strong in attendance, are being gathered. Now the Sanhedrin was not only, not only were they kind of like a religious body of leaders, but it, they were kind of political too. It's, they were kind of like our Supreme Court in a sense. They were the religious... Remember the way things were structured in, in Israel. Sometimes theology and politics and all that kind of ran together. And, and, and they had a leading role in both of those elements. Now the Sanhedrin would have been made up of, of both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
And here they are, they're having a meeting before their meeting with the apostles. They're getting their heads together. They're discussing who's going to say what. And I mean, you can just, just kind of see it now. They didn't realize that the apostles are free. So here they go to fetch them. Now you can imagine the guards unlocking all of the doors and there's nobody there. So all of this effort has gone into just guarding empty cells. And look at verse 25 and 26. We're told there someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They take the temple guard. They go fetch them again. And notice they're scared of the crowds because Christians could have incited the mobs, but they didn't. Then in verse 27 and and 28, they begin to interrogate the apostles. Now, what's the charge? What do they charge them with? What, what, What do they accuse them of having done? Look at verse 28. You have filled Jerusalem. With your teaching. Now folks, what a wonderful thing. Wouldn't it be great? What if the officials in Cabarrus County said to all the pastors and churches, You have filled this county with your teaching. Praise God. I mean, wouldn't that be great? You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Look at the second accusation. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, what do you find strange about that? Okay. And when they had him crucified, what was one of their arguments back in Matthew 27? Does anybody remember what one of their arguments was? Let this man's blood be on us. That's exactly one of the reasons they use for the uh, crucifixion. We'll take the blame. We'll bear the responsibility. Isn't it ironic? Now that the movement is growing, oh boy, they want to distance themselves from that, don't they? The blame that they were willing to take before, now that that didn't stomp this whole Jesus thing down, now it's beginning to spread and grow. Oh, now they're trying to, they're trying to uh, put blame somewhere else. Saying, you're intending to put this man's blood on us. Well, look thirdly at the defense given, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. First of all, I want you to notice what they say there. We've got to obey God rather than men. Here again, we deal with this issue of civil disobedience. Folks, as a general rule, The New Testament is clear in Romans 13 and in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
As a general rule, you and I are to be what? Model citizens. Model citizens. As a general rule. But then what happens when the government oversteps its boundary and tries to usurp the place of God in our life? Civil disobedience. This is the second time we see them doing that now in the book of Acts. We must obey God rather than men. Comes a time for that. Again, we're to be model citizens until the government tries to step in and usurp an authority that only belongs to God. And then Christians must take a stand, folks. We must say enough is enough. Notice what Peter also does here. He preaches the resurrection of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus is now at the right hand of God. And being at the right hand of God, Jesus is the one who's able to grant repentance and forgiveness. Peter's pointing out the seriousness of their sin. They claim to love Israel. But they have denied, they are denying the only one who can bring hope to Israel. The religious leaders are denying the only one who can bring hope to Israel. And Peter says here, we are witnesses. Now remember in the Old Testament, everything had to be established by at least two witnesses. Here all the apostles are saying, we're witnesses. And then on top of that, Peter is pointing out here, the Holy Spirit is also a witness to Jesus. He's a witness by all the signs and wonders that are being done. All the miracles that are being done. And so again, Peter is pointing out that they should have all the evidence that they need. And so not only are they denying Christ, but they're denying the Holy Spirit. Now folks, by distancing themselves from Jesus, they are distancing themselves from the very activity of God. I'm, I'm speaking of the religious leaders, the authorities. It, it's just like people today who claim to love God and yet they will deny Jesus. It's just like when people say, oh you can pray, but you better not mention the name of Jesus. Well, folks, according to the book of Romans and according to the book of Hebrews, if you take Jesus out of the prayer equation, guess what? You don't even have access to God. It was through Jesus' death on the cross, the veil was torn. The access into the Holy of Holies made possible for anybody to where the book of Hebrews says now, that because of Christ and what He's done, you and I can actually go boldly into the throne room of God. Oh, you take Jesus out of the equation though. 
You don't have access to God. You don't have access to God. So people who want to try to be spiritual, divorced from Christ, are cutting off their nose despite their face. Do we understand that in New Testament theology? I hope we understand that in New Testament theology. And that's why the writer of Hebrews takes great pains to point out that everything under in, in the Old Covenant is now obsolete. God is not dealing with people anymore on the basis of the Old Covenant. And that's, that's one of the reasons we need to pray for our Jewish friends because when they meet in their synagogues and in their, in their temples for worship and they're going through all their liturgy and all that, they're doing everything based on a covenant that the writer of Hebrews says is now obsolete. God's dealing with people through Christ. You cut yourself off from Christ and you have no access to God. None. Well, fourthly and lastly, look at the response. Verses 33 and, uh, and following. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. So we see the responses, first of all, a hard-heartedness. They're ready to kill. Now, the first time when the apostles were threatened, an angel delivered them. Now God uses a human messenger to deliver them. A guy by the name of Gamaliel. Now this man was a Pharisee who's described as being respected by all the people. In Acts 22 verse 3, Paul says that he himself was trained under Gamaliel. Now the Jews had two great schools. The school of, does anybody know what the two great schools were? Hillel and Shammai. Now let me just read something about these, these two schools. Uh, it's, it's believed that Gamaliel was of the school of Hillel. But anyway, Hillel and Shammai were two leading rabbis of the early 1st century B.C. who founded opposing schools of Jewish thought known as the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. The debate between these schools on matters of ritual practice, uh, ethics, and theology was critical for the shaping of the oral law and Judaism as it is today. Despite the many disputes that later developed between their respective houses, only five differences are recorded between Hillel and Shammai themselves. In the record of the Talmud alone, there are 316 issues on which they debated. The large number of their disputations led to the saying that the one law has become two. Now, the matters that they debated included admission... To Torah study. The house of Shammai believed only worthy students should be admitted to study Torah. The house of Hillel believed that Torah may be taught to anyone in the expectation that they will repent and become worthy. White lies. 
whether one, this is the example they, get, they gave, whether one should tell an ugly bride that she's beautiful. <laughs> Shammai said it was wrong to do so. Hillel said that all brides are beautiful on their wedding day. Divorce. The house of Shammai held that a man may only divorce his wife for a serious transgression. But the house of Hillel allowed divorce for even trivial offenses such as burning a meal. And then they had disputes over Hanukkah and how the different elements of Hanukkah were to be carried out. In general, the house of Shammai's position were stricter than those of the house of Hillel. The principles of the house of Shammai in relation to foreign policy were similar to those of the zealots along, uh, among whom they therefore found support. As over the course of the first century, public indignation against the Romans grew, the house of Shammai gradually gained the upper hand and the gentle and conciliatory house of Hillel came to be ostracized from the house of Shammai's public acts of prayer. So two main schools, two main rabbinical schools. Again, it's believed that Gamal was a member of the more gentle, the uh, some would even call Hillel a little bit more liberal in many of the issues. It's believed that this Gamal was actually the grandson of Hillel. So respected was uh, Gamaliel that one Jewish tradition says since Rabbi Gamal died there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence died out at the same time with him. Now Gamal gives some great advice here. You know you got to wonder if the Holy Spirit wasn't working on his heart. Now, we don't have any evidence later on in the New Testament that he came to faith in Christ. But one has to wonder. Gamal appealed for what? Time. And Gamal, uh, what he said, just think of all the others. Thutis, uh, Judas, all these other religious leaders that have come into the land and garnered followers or disciples around them, what eventually happened? When that person died or was killed, what happened? All of their followers disbanded. And so Gamaliel essentially says, if this movement, this Jesus movement is of man... Don't worry about it. In time, it'll die. But if it's of God, you'll be found fighting against God, a position you don't want to be in. Now, fortunately, they took his advice. You know, it's like they just couldn't let it end there, though. In verse 40, it says they still took him out and what? Flogged them. But then they, they released him. Now look at their response. What was their response? What was the response of the apostles? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus. Wow. 
Now, just several lessons I want to leave you with before our prayer time tonight. Lesson number one, folks, we need to understand that the Christian life can be a life of trials. The Christian life can be a life of trials. The Bible tells us it will be. It may be God taking you through a trial. It may be the evil one bringing something upon you. But nonetheless, the Christian life is a life of trials. If you're going through trials or hardship in your life, don't automatically assume, what's wrong with me? Am I suffering this because I don't have enough faith? You know, that's what some today want to tell us, isn't it? Something's going wrong in your life. If you're not healed or you're not rich, brother, you just don't have enough faith. That's not the Bible. A second lesson here is the fact that the world will oppose us. Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. The servant is not greater than the master. Christians want to be liked by everybody. We try. We try. We don't. The gospel is, is an offense all in and enough in and of itself we don't want to purposely be an offense we want everybody to like us but should we expect it's going to be that way no in fact scripture says beware if all men speak well of you so the world will oppose us A third lesson, though, I want you to remember. God stands by His servants. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2? Paul reminded Timothy, Timothy, the Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord stands by His servants. Christian life's going to be a life of trials. The world's going to hate you and oppose you. But the Lord knows those who are His, and He's going to stand with you. 